0: What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to Off The Chain, simply the best podcast in crypto. Let's kick this thing off. Nick Carter is a partner at Castle Island Ventures and a co-founder of CoinMetrics. In this conversation, we discuss financial service organizations' interest in cryptocurrency, the quality of data in crypto, What areas of Bitcoin and crypto Nick is excited about investing in? And then we played a game of FUD dice. I really enjoyed this conversation and had a lot of fun. I hope you enjoy it as well. Monarch is building the future for those interested in one wallet that consolidates the best services and functionality into a simple and easy to use application. The Monarch app and wallet will empower users to control all aspects of the financial kingdom from the palm of their hand. You may have heard the phrase, not your keys, not your crypto. With Monarch, you own your keys and your seed phrase, meaning you own your own crypto. With Monarch, you can store, receive, send, swap, buy, sell, and earn interest on your crypto. You can track your portfolio in the news, and you can check the market cap daily. They're constantly adding new services and updates, and you can learn more today by visiting monarchwallet.com Slash pomp again that's monarchwallet.com slash pomp or you can download the wallet for free today from apple or google All right, guys, Bang Bang, I am here with uh, Mr. Nick Carter himself. Um, We got a lot to talk about, and uh, he actually brought me uh, some of the dice, so we will play a little game towards the end as well. But uh, thank you so much for coming. My pleasure, man. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> for sure. Um, all right. I think everyone knows you as uh, this prolific crypto investor, but maybe let's talk about life pre going to Fidelity and then eventually spinning out, and then we can get into uh, what you're doing at Fidelity. Sure. Well, I, I don't know if uh, prolific is the word, but um,
1: so just uh, go with it. Go with it. <laughs> prior to uh, to Fidelity, I uh, I was uh, I was actually a business school just before that, um, University of Edinburgh, doing a master's in finance, um, and before that, I was just a I actually worked as a journalist, believe it or not. Really? Yeah. So I, I wrote about um, uh, corporate law, which is uh, like one of the dullest topics imaginable. Uh, but it actually ended up being like fairly useful because like so much of this industry is based on like reading like the regulatory tea leaves yep. and be like, what's the SEC going to do next? Uh, so in some ways, it was like good preparation for that. Absolutely. Uh, but uh, yeah, I decided I wanted to get in finance. I was very into crypto. This was sort of in, in 2014, so I was into Bitcoin at the time. Um, I hadn't done anything with it seriously, and I was like, "Well, can I learn how to value these assets like these this new asset class? How do I value them?" And I was like, "Well, I might as well go to business school and and take cues from like equity valuation." Yep. Uh, but um, turns out nobody at the business school cared about crypto in twenty sixteen, uh, which is like unsurprising. I don't think many business schools cared, uh, so there wasn't any uh cryptocurrency content, which is again not very surprising. Mm-hmm. Uh so then I wrote my thesis. I actually had to go to the course director and, and ask special permission to write a thesis on on crypto assets. Wow. So uh, and they gave me dispensation and then it was it was a hit. So it was it was successful. But um it was I think the first thesis written at, at the University of Edinburgh Business School about crypto assets as an asset class directly.
0: And you wrote this about crypto in general, about Bitcoin, crypto in general with a focus on Bitcoin. How did you kind of break down the Thesis. So, it was actually about
1: the, um, the corporate governance in crypto assets. So, it covered Bitcoin uh, yep. or, or lack thereof, basically. So, it did cover Bitcoin and other sort of very you know, decentralized public blockchains. But it, it, for the most part, it was a cross sectional survey of 50 tokens, crypto assets, whatever you want to call them. Um, and I was trying to determine whether investors and ICOs had genuine governance rights. Got such it. as they might be accustomed to in you know in, in equity land mm-hmm. and of course the answer was no um, <laughs> I was gonna say surprise <laughs> yeah and, and this was 2016-17 so it was like still fairly early um, and there none, none nothing was very developed in terms of uh, you know modes of governance um, as we've seen some you know successful experiments today so back in the day basically I was saying look there's no transparency here um, Investors aren't. Uh, they don't have recourse. Uh, they're not really buying any cash flows or anything. Uh, they're not buying liquidation preference, um, and so this. I, I mean, all of this was fairly obvious. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this was my effort to do a systematic kind of takedown uh, and and see you know what investors actually. Uh, were getting access to when they bought uh,
0: tokens. And so, I think it's uh, very obvious to people what they're not getting access to, right? Because they basically look at the equity world and they make comparisons and, you know, if you do a chart, it's literally like equity land, yes, <laughs> token land, no. Uh, <laughs> yeah. what, it, did you come away with anything that the token investors were getting access to or like anything that was on the, you know, quote unquote, positive side? Well, I mean, for uh, for you know, uh, authentic uh, decentralized cryptocurrencies,
1: I think it's extremely positive. You get access to a spot on the registry, mm-hmm. uh, which is worth something for sure. Um, but uh, for what I call pseudo equity, so uh, tokens which are sold to mirror equity or to mm-hmm. resemble equity. Uh, you're not really getting any of those guarantees at all. So that's why I've you know long been uh, suspicious of
0: them, basically. Yeah, I, um, I think that if anyone has followed you on Twitter for any period of time, uh, the thing that you can appreciate is not only do you have a position, but the way that you approach that position is uh, very rational. Uh, which I think in crypto, the default is just yell scam, (laughs) right? Anything that you don't like, people just yell scam. Uh, Whereas you take a very systematic and rational approach to explaining why maybe something isn't as uh, enticing as it it otherwise could be. (laughs) Well, I've done my fair share of uh, scam calling. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All right, so uh, you write the thesis, uh, is well received, and then you end up at Fidelity. Coming from somebody who is a Bitcoin fan and believer, um, why go to Fidelity? What was kind of the thought process? And and then what were you doing there? So I was actually looking to, um, even though
1: I wrote the thesis on crypto assets, I didn't believe that there was a job market for finance grads in crypto. Oh, interesting. Um, And uh, I thought to myself, I'm like, yeah, like I love crypto. I would love to work in it, but there doesn't seem, there don't really seem to be many firms active there. You know, it's just it's just still incredibly niche, um, and so I reached out to the only analyst that I'd heard of in crypto, which was Chris Berniski, and I sent him my thesis, and um, amazingly, he like answered my cold DM, which was super cool of him, um, and he was at Ark Investments at the time, mm-hmm. uh, and he actually brought me into New York. I got to meet the team; it was just amazing, uh, especially as someone who's a complete no name. Um, and then he actually introduced me to uh, Matt Walsh, who was um, was starting a crypto fund at Fidelity, Got so it. I actually owe a huge amount to to Chris Bernisky. Um And this goes to the merit of like um, keeping your DMs
0: open, which is actually why I keep mine open all the time. Yeah, so I keep mine open as well. Yeah. Uh, you get your fair share, I'm sure, of the the crazies oh, and the sure. trolls and all I'm that. I'm sure you get more. Um, <laughs> uh, Pete. I, I just don't to answer anymore. I used to try to answer everyone, yeah. even the trolls, and kind of troll them back a little bit. But now I'm, uh, yeah. I'm in the just. I'm just going to respond to people who actually are <laughs> important. Um, but. Uh, so, Chris at the time is at ARK Invest, which has this really cool kind of research first approach to investing in public equities. Uh, they yeah. actually went into crypto uh, as well. He helped uh, facilitate that for them or kind of ignite some of that. Um, why choose to go to Fidelity? Yeah, well, I um, I knew that Fidelity had a positive
1: view of crypto, um, although I didn't know very much. And when I went for an interview, I sat down with Matt Walsh and David Konitsky and they were both Bitcoiners. And I was like, wow, like, how did this happen? (laughs) How did Bitcoiners infiltrate Fidelity? The infiltration (laughs) is like already complete. Um, And when I went, I was basically conducting a litmus test, like, well, you know, are we ideologically aligned here? Mm -hmm. You know, is it like a total paradox to be at a large financial institution and also uh, believe that crypto itself is, you know, a real transformative movement Um, and uh, everything I understood from that visit was that Fidelity is super super aligned, um, especially the you know the top leadership there is is very much aligned with the with the ethos of the crypto industry and with Bitcoin in particular, uh, which was just revelatory for me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, I knew that Fidelity is this behemoth of asset management, um, and I guess they you know they they did get turned on very early to the concept of cryptocurrency as you know an asset class as opposed to just Bitcoin as a new technology. So they made that transformation relatively early on. Um, and, um, you know, through Abby's guidance, they uh, they totally embraced the concept and now have multiple business lines.
0: Yeah, so uh, before we get started, I, I was we were talking a little bit about um, just kind of large financial institutions in general. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of people who are, um, opportunistic, right, in the sense of, oh, crypto's hot today. You know, we're super excited about crypto. Oh, now we're in 2018 bear market. We forgot to talk about crypto for the last 12 months. Right. And I'm sure when it comes back, like they'll be the biggest enthusiast again. Right. So they kind of um, I'll call it uh, this false bravado around the asset. And they only are excited about it when it is uh, kind of uh, beneficial to them. It doesn't seem like Fidelity is that way. Fidelity, kind of through the bull and bear markets uh, for a while now, has been enthusiastic and building real technology, real teams, et cetera, around this. Was that your experience? For sure, yeah. Um, so I, I
1: wouldn't have uh, gone there to work as the, the crypto asset analyst if I didn't believe that they authentically um, you know, were I- invested in this space. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've been methodically building towards a presence in crypto assets. Uh, from 2014 onwards mm-hmm. uh, to present so um it it does take a long time to like change the tack of uh, or or to even introduce new business lines that a behemoth like fidelity but uh, yeah they've been pretty um you know uh, resolute in their uh, progress towards this and the the custody um, uh, you know, business line, which is out now is, is good evidence there.
0: Absolutely. What, um, what was your biggest takeaway in terms of like the advantages that a large financial institution like a Fidelity brings to Bitcoin and crypto ecosystem that maybe we wouldn't have access to otherwise, right? Like, because in my perspective, everyone always thinks about the challengers, right? Like innovation comes from the challengers, et cetera. But there is value, I think, to having a lot of resources, experience, large teams. Like, what was that takeaway for you?
1: So, they have some really key advantages. So, custody is uh, an industry where uh, trust really matters and brands matter mm-hmm. a lot, um, especially if you're an institutional allocator. Um, you may not necessarily trust any of the new um, startups that are doing custody in the space. And that's not because they have no technical merit, but it's just because uh, it takes a lot of institutional knowledge to do something as critical as custody right, especially in terms of mitigating key man risk. These are the kind of things that have undone custodians in crypto mm-hmm. that don't have that accumulated, you know, thousands or, or hundreds of years of of institutional knowledge. Um, so that's one thing that an existing asset manager custodian can kind of do well, um, and uh, they, you know, there's also just the brand element. So uh, you may not necessarily trust a Coinbase for your custody mm-hmm. um, if you're, you know, a pension fund, um, and then it's the ability to interface with regulators. Uh, and the SEC, for instance, for clarity on what constitutes a good control location, um, and so it's it's partly is just the, the the platform that um, being an institution of that significance brings you.
0: Yeah, look, I, I think it makes a lot of sense. And uh, your idea of kind of trust, right? The trust is um, what is it? I think Warren Buffett is the guy who's got the quote that says, uh, "You know, it takes a lifetime to build a reputation, in five minutes to lose it." Trust is very similar. Right. And that you can literally spend, you know, I was like 100 years old at this point. Right. Uh, building that trust. And if for some reason something was to happen, that could disappear very quickly as well.
1: Yeah. And um, this is, I think, maybe a little under underappreciated within the industry. Um, people sometimes say, well, what's why would you need to custody your funds with a third party with an institution? The whole point is to, you know, uh, custody them yourself. Um, and this to- is totally valid. Um, but um, for, you know, larger institutions that want access to this or larger funds that want access to the asset class, they just in practice cannot get direct access and they don't want to take on that risk. They don't want to have a, a ledger in like the drawer of the, you know, the chief investment officer's office or something.
0: I, I uh, when we went through the due diligence for the public pensions, uh, I remember sitting there with like an outsourced uh, third party that was helping them with like operational due diligence stuff. and. Uh, they didn't even necessarily know all the questions to ask, right? Because you don't normally have to ask like, hey, do you, are you guys holding the stock certificates here? <laughs> right, like that's not a thing. Uh, and so there's a little bit of two-way education going on of like, you know, if you ever diligence another crypto manager, you probably should ask like, is there the ledger in the drawer, <laughs> right? Uh, but, but it is, I mean, look, there's a lot of crypto funds that actually manage quite a bit of money where, there's one, maybe two people who have access to funds, On right? Trezor or something, just crazy, just sitting there. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, it's,
1: it's, this as a class is very paradoxical because we never have had these bare assets, which are just strings of information. Mm-hmm. And turns out, custodying a string of
0: letters and numbers is extremely challenging. For sure, so um, we're, we're collectively still learning how to do it. And I think also an element I think a lot about is many of the people who are making the investment decisions are investors. And they don't come to the table with a lot of technical knowledge, right? So other people on their team have the technical knowledge, but the actual, you know, the CIO doesn't come from a computer science master's degree and having worked at a tech company for 20 years, right? It's just that's a hard transition for people to make. Um, and so I think that uh, there's a lack of technical knowledge, which leads to even a fund manager, in many cases, actually trusts a third party to custody the assets better than their own Self or their own team. Yeah, and I mean, it makes
1: sense um, because it is a deeply technical challenge. I mm-hmm. mean, you know, try setting up an air gapped Monero wallet or something. thats <laughs> It's a huge pain. Um, so they shouldn't really be undertaking those those kind of engineering decisions, you know? Absolutely. So they probably should be outsourcing it.
0: So uh, you left Fidelity, started uh, Castle Island, um, and then you also run Coinmetrics. Maybe just give us a quick overview of the fund and then of Coinmetrics.
1: So Castle Island is a C stage venture fund. Uh, we're based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, we um, raised in summer twenty eighteen, um, and we are focused exclusively on businesses building uh, in or around or adjacent to public blockchains. So we believe that it, it this is a um, you know a, a sea change uh, in terms of uh, this institutional technology, which will. Totally revolutionized the way that that you know value is conveyed uh, worldwide, but it also needs lots of enabling infrastructure and technology to function well. So custody we've been talking about is one thing. Things like key management uh, on the trading side, uh, you know, execution, um, any of those kind of trading facilities that'll allow uh, you know conventional allocators to get access to this asset class. Um, and then um, you know th- things that will make it more useful for norm- normal individuals like merchant payment processing, um, you know anything on the Lightning stack. So that's kind of where we're concerned. You know is, is the intersection of financial services uh, and and public blockchains. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then of course we're looking to some you know applications maybe gaming NFT. Etc. But we're still pretty early on the application side, and I think we're you know this is a bit of a meme at this point, but we're still in the infrastructure phase. For sure.
0: Where did the name Castle Island come from?
1: Castle Island is a place in uh, in kind of South Boston. Um, There's a fort. Um, It's uh, it's a pentagon. Okay. Um, And there's no like particular significance. Um, The one story we can tell about it is that. it Castle Island is neither an island and it's not really a castle, <laughs> um, and in it kind of in that same sense, we're like blockchain uh, VCs, but uh, we don't really like the word blockchain. Um, and we don't do tokens. So we're kind of beset by paradoxes. Yeah, yeah. I, I love the, uh, the, the whole like contrarian
0: aspect of it, right?
1: Um, <laughs> we were contrarians when we started because uh, SAFs and tokens were still really popular then. We resolutely did not do those, but now uh, I guess our,
0: our perspective is a bit more mainstream. It is, uh, it is funny how a, all it takes is an 85% drawdown in uh, some liquid tokens to get people to uh, start paying attention to maybe where the sustainable value is, right? <laughs> when everything's going up and to the right, it's easy to just, everyone thinks they're a genius. Um, okay, so, so Castle Island, uh, you guys raised that fund, um, you're deploying capital out of it, and then you've got Coin Metrics as well. Yeah, so Coinmetrics is a, a portfolio of company
1: of Castle Islands. It's also a company that I founded, um, and it started as a research project actually way back when I was in business school. So what I was trying to do was build quantitative models to understand whether the valuation of cryptocurrencies was related to their underlying characteristics. My thesis was that there are these mini economies, and if we could deeply understand the flow of funds within the economy, on-chain then we could you know, potentially predict valuation or at least understand valuation a little bit better, uh, because we kind of lack standard multiples. Obviously, there's no like PE ratios or uh, earnings or even a concept of revenue in, in public blockchains. So I was trying to build uh, proxies for that or at least understand the economic characteristics of these blockchains better. So I started, uh, together with a friend, scraping data from a variety of blockchains and then initially just posting online, posting CSVs, uh, and you know we created a charting suite as well so people could uh, you know, track transaction value over time versus price, things like that. Uh, and this became really, really popular uh, over the last two years. And when we started Castle Island, we thought, well, we have a great thing here. Um, you know, we have this huge amount of organic interest. Um, all these funds are using our data, um, all these like media outlets. Uh, why not um, commercialize it? Retain the open source and free um, ethos, you know, and and all of our 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 code that we use to, to scrape these chains is is open source and available on our GitHub. Uh, so we'll we'll retain that, and then also sell a subscription so that we can you know plow that back into R and D and make the free product better and better. Uh, so commercializing it, the objective was uh, basically to uh, increase the transparency of the industry and and give people a better idea overall of how Blockchains are used. What they're used for? Because you know, it's like this eternal question. There's three four hundred thousand transactions on Bitcoin in a given day, and nobody knows what they're for. Whether it's like payouts from mining pools, Venezuelans sending money back and forth, people just sending money to exchanges. There's very little insight to in, into what the the nature of the Bitcoin economy is, mm-hmm. and that's what I wanted to discover. And so that was really why we started Coin Metrics.
0: Got it. It, it um. I think of Bitcoin from a transaction settlement network as like a sleeping giant, right? The uh, the metrics I saw recently were uh, in Q1 of 2019, Venmo did, I think it was like $20, $21 billion of transaction volume. Yeah. And so let's call it they'll do somewhere between 85 and $90 billion for the year. Bitcoin last year in 2018 did over $410 billion on chain, right? And so you start to look at this and you're like, this thing is exponentially bigger, right? Or materially bigger than Venmo, which is something that you and I think of as pervasive in the developed world, right? Uh, if you look at Apple pay, same thing, right? it's just like, it is much, much bigger. I think that people realize, and now the question becomes why, what are people doing with that stuff, right? Why is all that transactions happening?
1: Totally, and then that's what we sought to investigate. I mean, I remember seeing these figures. I'm like, what the hell are people using it for? Like yeah. a couple billion dollars a day. Like, <laughs> what is happening here? Like, people are just sending money to Binance and Bitmex. Is like that all it is? Um, and so, like, it is actually a very challenging exercise to uh, to investigate the ground truth. It requires a lot of like tagging exchanges and mm-hmm. custodians. Most of the volume in practice is related to exchanges, but. Um, you know, so the mainstream media tends to characterize that as speculation. I see more as saving. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I view Bitcoin as a savings instrument. Mm-hmm. So lots of the volume is just related to uh, individuals depositing on exchanges or withdrawing from exchanges mm-hmm. for sure. But and, and I guess there's also a bit of a disanalogy between the squares and Venmos uh, and Bitcoin because Bitcoin is like a kind of a full stack uh, settlement network, uh, whereas those uh, those payment networks are dependent on the current, you know, settlement infrastructure.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so that's why I sort of like to compare Bitcoin to like FedWire or Swift, although it's not a perfect comparison. Yep. Um, but yeah, the, the it is really uh, it scales not with count, not with transaction count, or by adding more data to the ledger exponentially, but it scales in terms of transaction value. For I sure. Think. And uh, and there's kind of a, a growing awakening that that's maybe the better way to understand the network.
0: Do you feel like some of these large financial institutions will be able to use bitcoin or other public chains to do a lot of what they're trying to do today Uh, or do you think that they're going to naturally just refuse to do that and end up using these private chains that they're all building
1: oh that's i mean that's a really challenging question um it, it seems like we're at the tail end of a um an r d phase where the belief within many of these institutions was that the public chains were a distraction private chains were uh, where the interesting R and D was happening, and like hundreds of millions of dollars of R and D were plowed into this idea, uh, with with you know private consortia and like these consortium chains, uh, and enterprise blockchains, and now that it's been like a good four or five years since the dawn of the enterprise blockchain, a lot of those initial really hot startups and uh, ventures have um, begin to they've begun to fall apart a little bit or just not really bear fruit. Uh, not pay off the way that people expected them to. And that's because I don't think there really is anything like frankly, fundamentally new about enterprise blockchains, um, although I'm, I'm sure we'll see some interesting developments in like database technology. But um, I do view the, the key fundamental in- innovation here as uh, creating a, a, a digital commons where uh, you know no one is excluded from transacting. Um, and the nature of the ledger is auditable and very well understood. Uh, so, I think public blockchains are the, the key linchpin here. Um, whether or not larger, you know, regulated enterprises will be comfortable transacting on them is another matter entirely, and it'll take them a long time to get comfortable with it. Um, however, we're seeing steps in that direction, though. So, I think EY, it recently came out that they were um, you know, e- e- productizing uh, usages of Ethereum like on mainnet, not a fork of Ethereum, but like Ethereum itself. Um, obviously, the custodians custodying Bitcoin are using Bitcoin itself. Um, and, you know, JPM, there's a question over what JPM coin is, um, but it, it's very plausible to me that they would transition that from quorum to Ethereum mainnet because the architecture is so similar mm-hmm. um, if they ever wanted to actually open that thing up. Yeah so I there I think it is a very slow process, which is totally fine. Uh, but they're gradually getting attenuated to using uh, this public infrastructure.
0: To me, it's like every individual goes through a journey, right? They discover Bitcoin. Oh, this is interesting. Let me learn more about it. Uh, I don't know if it's going to work. Let me go figure out uh, maybe it's tokenization or it's like enterprise blockchain, right? They like, kind of work their way through the ecosystem and they figure out, oh, ICOs were cool. Okay, maybe that's not going to work. And then they eventually send back up at, oh, Bitcoin's real, <laughs> right? But like there is this journey that people take uh, where they are kind of exploratory in these different ideas. Uh, enterprises are no different. They're just made up of people, so they're kind of doing the same thing. The difference is you and I don't have hundreds of millions of dollars in our back pocket to go to go into R and D of enterprise blockchain, right? But like that's the
1: way they learn. Yeah, Fidelity went through the same thing. Uh, they looked at enterprise blockchains twenty fourteen fifteen. Mm-hmm. Um, so they started with mining Bitcoin, and they're like, "Well, maybe there's more to it. Maybe blockchain itself is a general purpose technology. Let's look at that." And then they circled back around. Mm-hmm. And personally, yeah, I you know I. Um, that's okay. I, I, yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, you're operating on incomplete information at first, so you, you do have to explore every possibility. And I mean, I don't know if the if there's like a right place to end up, whether that's just Bitcoin or uh, it's warranted to be more open-minded than that. But
0: I certainly went through a very similar process, too. Yeah, absolutely. All right. I want to talk about uh, something that you're very vocal uh, around, which is this uh, proof of reserves, right? And this idea that um, exchanges and uh, and kind of the solvency of these institutions that are in crypto, that are uh, handling people's funds. Maybe just describe, like, what is proof of reserves and why you think it's important to get started?
1: So the reason that I um, care about this concept, proof of reserves, is that... Um, exchanges are such important uh, members of the crypto industry, but they have typically abused that privilege. I would say, and you don't have to look far for examples of this. Obviously, Gox is one. Very recently, Quadriga, you know, was operating in a fractional reserve and collapsed. Um, I don't think the key loss story that was the cover story is is really the case. Um, so, you know, and, and like, unfortunately. Um, I would say more people use or have access to crypto indirectly through exchanges than they do directly have access. Mm-hmm. And you can kind of look at the chains uh, and confirm this. So uh, there is an estimate in the, in the Cambridge benchmarking study uh, that about 130 million people have accounts on exchanges globally. And if I do take a guess about the on chain owners of Bitcoin and Ethereum, it's probably more in the. In the ten in the low double digit millions, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of on chain wallets. So yep. in practice, people own Bitcoin or Ethereum or other cryptocurrencies indirectly through exchanges. So they use exchanges as banks. They're not just using them on a pass through basis, um, and so since exchanges resemble depository institutions uh, almost more than they resemble. Um, you know, like, Shapeshift, for instance, would be one where it's a pass-through. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're not trading accounts. They're actually banks where people are leaving their funds in. Yes, yeah. because that's what people are used to, yep. you know? And, and they don't quite see the disanalogy between, like, Chase and uh, and Coinbase. <laughs> um, so, and, and, you know, not to demean Coinbase, but um, it, exchanges occupy this, like, they you know, something like 15, about 15 to 20% of all Bitcoins are held with these custodians. So it's really important that they're behaving... Well, but they, they just tend not to. Um, even the regulated ones, the the regulatory framework in the U.S. is like this patchwork of state by state regulation. You got the bill license in New York, but there's no real federal regulation there. So uh, exchanges uh, operate in this like gray area a lot of the time. Uh, and it, you know, I, I I don't think it's really an answered question of what would happen if Kraken and Coinbase became insolvent. Um, would all those funds be available to to depositors? Um, so, the, the idea behind proof of reserves is that using uh, Bitcoin's cryptographic properties, exchanges can actually prove how much Bitcoin they have in reserve, and it's really not difficult to generate this proof. And just real quick, so that uh,
0: people who are listening understand fully, uh, when you talk about reserves. Explain exactly what you mean by that.
1: A reserve is simply, um, if I'm a depositor institution like Coinbase, um, I can prove to you that I have a certain number of Bitcoins under
0: deposit. Yep. So you're holding it in some, some whether it's hot storage, cold storage, whatever it is, um, you actually have those funds that you're saying that you have. Yes,
1: it under your control. Yep. Yeah. And um, that doesn't alone prove that you're solvent. Solvent meaning uh, that you are able to fully redeem all accounts on demand uh, immediately, if you want. Because the, the default assumption is that you're operating a full reserve in crypto, mm-hmm. that you can, even if there's a bank run where every
0: depositor wants their funds back right now, you could in theory service that. Yeah, Be- because the thought process is that the rehypothecation, all the fractional reserve stuff is not happening in crypto. That's that's the hope. That's the theory, yeah. <laughs> and so what I am suggesting is that
1: exchanges um, should be offering up these proofs, um, and you can do it in such a way that it doesn't compromise user privacy and that it doesn't even reveal your entire balance. Uh, you can pair it with a proof of liabilities, which is here are the accounts under deposit and here is how much is in each account, and it gets into a little complexity, but you can generate a proof of solvency. On this basis, so that you know you can, uh, there's a there's a paper called Provisions which has a zero knowledge proof, but uh, again not to get into the details, um, you can in theory uh, pair this um, with a proof of liability and essentially prove that you are operating solvently and that you're not misrepresenting the funds under custody to your depositors, and I think this is important. Quadriga is a great example. So Quadriga for a long time was insolvent. They didn't have enough funds to cover all the deposits, Mm -hmm. Um, and if there had been a bank run,
0: that would have been exposed.
1: Well, I mean, and it was exposed. It just happened. It so happened that it was catalyzed by the death of the, um, you know, of the founder. But um, for years, they didn't. They weren't able to cover user deposits, Mm -hmm. and um, this was like the biggest exchange in Canada, I think. So this is a really big deal, and if if the depositors instead demanded a proof of reserve attestation. Mm They would have known years in advance that you know there was a, either a fraud or something shady happening there, uh, and you know lots of harm uh, would have been avoided. So th- this
0: is a pretty critical issue, and it's surprising to me that that um, that people aren't taking it as seriously. So two questions. One of them is uh, selfishly just out of personal interest. Uh, in this situation, would there be a way for an exchange to basically say, "Yes, we have the reserve that we are expected to have." Uh, to a non-technical person who may not understand proof of reserves, the actual underlying technology of Bitcoin or other crypto assets, like almost like, um, it's funny to say this, but like a, 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 bitter, a better business bureau rating, right? Of like, hey, you get an A plus or, um, you know, you kind of get a credit rating, right? Like. Yeah you are deemed by somebody that says, yes, you have what you say you have, or do you think it actually needs to be uh, a little bit deeper um, in terms of the disclosures and the ability for people to check?
1: So the only way to really check is um, is if you pair it with an actual auditor, so mm-hmm. a conventional auditor. Um, so the auditor has to attest to the the fiat liabilities, and then the exchange can, with this proof of reserve tool, um, very trivially show to them that they have the reserves. But there's so proof of reserves is not a new concept. It actually mm-hmm. happened a lot on exchanges in 2014. So Kraken did it, uh, Bitstamp did it, I believe, um, Huobi did it, um, if I'm not misremembering. Uh, so after Mt. Gox collapsed, that was the catalyst. And Got lots it. of these exchanges were like, we're going to prove to you that we're fully backed. Mm-hmm. And so they did it on a one off basis. And that was actually, you'd basically go in your account and like hit a checkbox and be like, verify account. And then you, it would it would create a proof for you, um, but so the it, it, and the funny thing is that like Kraken in particular said that this would be something they do on an ongoing basis, and then they stopped after the first one. So th- this is just me reminding them of um, of you know th- that they claimed they would be doing this on an ongoing basis. But today there's basically only one exchange that does this small UK exchange called Coinfloor. And they've, to their credit, they've done a proof of reserve attestation 60 months in a row. 60? 60? Six zero. Zero. Yeah. Oh, my
0: God. Yeah. yeah. So they Five do. Five years.
1: Yeah. Um, and mm-hmm. it, it's like a little crude and like, it to some degree, it requires them leaking how many Bitcoins they have under
0: custody. But uh, why would somebody uh, not want that known? Right? Like, why would, like, what, take the seat of the exchange owner. And so, yes, I understand the value to the users or my customers that the proof of reserves are there is there a business reason for not participating? One, like What would their response be? One reason would be if they were actually
1: performing secondary lending, mm-hmm. but in that case, they are effectively behaving much more like a, deba- a bank where they're lending out deposits. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, if they're doing that and they're not telling people they're doing that, then that's a problem. Uh, that would be, but so if they admit that they're doing it and everyone collectively agrees, okay, that's fine, mm-hmm. then they're not gonna be able to prove reserves because they wouldn't have reserves because they'd be operating like a conventional bank. But uh, you know, it, for an institution that's meant to be full reserve, which is de facto all the exchanges in crypto, um, they shouldn't really have a, a business impairment, aside from maybe they don't want to leak some data, like how many Bitcoins they have under custody. But to be frank with you, uh, you know, firms like Coinmetrics can find that out without too much difficulty. Uh, I mean, unless you, these you can wallets just, are known. The right? wallets are known. You can inspect the chain. Yeah. So, um, you know, Coinbase has like 800,000 or so Bitcoins. Um, you know, Zapo has roughly you know a quarter, three quarters of a million bitcoins. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can look at their vaults on chain and see, like Coinbase is like twenty five percent of all Litecoin. It's it's not that difficult to find out what their uh, cold wallets are. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if they're concerned about leaking the number of crypto, of like you know the number of Bitcoin they have, uh, that's already
0: basically in the public domain. It's already out there. Yeah. yeah. What? Um. So, so, kind of going off of this, how does this work in the legacy financial system, right, in terms of like, quote, unquote, proof of reserves?
1: Well, so there's no uh, requirement that banks do this <laughs> uh, in that way because banks are guaranteed you know, by the FDIC. So if a bank becomes insolvent, uh, the government still guarantees all the deposits. So mm-hmm. uh, that's why I'm not like banging on the door of my credit union and be like, what are your reserves? Like, prove yep. it to me. Uh, because, like, even if they fail, I'm going to be getting my funds out of there yep. up to uh, what is it like 250,000? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but they actually still have an expectation of proving uh, capital reserves, I believe, and like capital ratios for uh, mid sized depository institutions in the US. Uh, happen to be corrected on this, but I think they're like 10 to
0: 12% or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and do you think that that type of uh, assurances will come to crypto, or do you think it's just a, it's a different beast? Um, In terms of being able to get some sort of, I think maybe Gemini is FDIC insured or has something similar to the insurance? I'm not 100% sure. Yeah, Uh, maybe not. But But yeah, so what about like, do you think that there's a world where we see either FDIC insurance or something similar to crypto and then this proof of reserves thing maybe doesn't become uh, non-existent, but just is less important because there is the
1: assurance there? Yeah, that I mean, that certainly could happen if um, if these exchanges become more tightly regulated. Mm-hmm. But the nature of the industry is it's so permissionless that exchanges just they can appear entrepreneurially, especially in non U.S. jurisdictions, and then there's not that backstop of government assurance. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that case, we then have to default to things like um, just trusting the brand, trusting them not to misbehave. And I don't want to trust them. You know, I would prefer um, that they. Um, that they are providing us with cryptographic assurances. Uh, But in the US, it certainly could become more tightly coupled. Maybe we'll get federal regulation uh, regarding exchanges, um, and maybe it ends up looking much more like the traditional banking system, where they have to prove capital ratios. Maybe they don't even have to prove 100% reserves, for instance.
0: What is your take on um, the percentage of institutions that are probably Either intentionally or unintentionally involved in something that would be exposed negatively by proof of reserves, are we talking about half the industry, like single-digit percentages, a hundred percent, like what, like just ballpark? What do you think it actually would be?
1: So for the regulated exchanges, like um, you know the the federal or the the you know the the serious regulated exchanges in the U.S., I would say most of them are, are totally solvent. Um, but um, you know, if you like, tick down the exchange list on CoinMarketCap, I'm sure a really large fraction of those are not fully backed at all. And I'm not saying that because I have any particular knowledge, but just from historical precedent, um, these things often um, are you know, either exit scams by the creators or they get hacked and they lose some Bitcoin, they want to cover it up. This happens all the time. Bifnex is a great example. Mm-hmm. We know right now that there is a large fraction of the funds uh, belonging to them which are not accessible to them. Mm-hmm. Um, but the interesting thing is that we we know that, so we have the benefit of that information, so then we can withdraw our funds before it collapses.
0: Yeah, m- maybe give an overview of, like, your understanding of what's going on with Bitfinex and Tether, right? I think everyone saw the news and just knows that, hey, the New York Attorney General has – stepped in is how I'll put it I, I don't even think people actually understand is it are they suing them are they charging them with something I'm less concerned about like what the nomenclature of what the regulators are doing and more about just what is the relationship between Bitfinex and Tether and then what's going on between the two that has caused concern
1: yeah, I mean it's in, it's incredibly murky territory. Um <laughs> my understanding is that essentially the leadership of Bifnex and Tether is uh, effectively the same. same. Yep. Um and they
0: share a parent company for sure.
1: Yeah. Yep. And um there there was a liability which which occurred when this entity Crypto Capital had that 850 million seized and then it was commingled between the two um with Bifinex using the the funds held in reserve for Tether um, to handle that, which was, um, I, I guess, I mean, they alter the terms of service for Tether to say that it could be backed by this like quasi loan, um, but um, it's it was um, probably pretty deceptive to commingle the liabilities of Tether and Bitfinex, which should have been totally distinct.
0: Yeah, because c- I think one argument is uh, basically Bitfinex is doing an intercompany loan, they're the borrower, right, right, from Tether, and so that's not abnormal. On the other hand... Yeah, that's common. But ...you're not telling the customers this, you're changing terms of service in kind of murky ways, right? I mean, there's a whole bunch of questions, I think, where people are like, what the hell is going on? And this is actually roughly on the same topic as proof of
1: reserves. Since we are in this parallel financial system where we can't rely on state authorities as much to, uh, to protect users, we have to default to more transparency mm-hmm. by these institutions like tether uh, that are trusted by many people and uh, unfortunately they haven't really been able to provide that level of transparency over their history and this is an, another great case they were very untransparent about what was actually occurring there uh, especially when they changed the ter- the terms of service to say well we're, you know we're not fully backed by dollars in the bank account but we're backed by a loan um, so the they owe us all of these institutions, exchanges, custodians, crypto banks, etc., because they live, for the most part, outside of the traditional financial system, they owe us more transparency than those those institutions do. And so far, they've failed to deliver that to us.
0: Yeah, the, the part that is really interesting, I think, in, in my opinion, is um, all this news comes out, right? And I think the really hardcore crypto enthusiasts or the people who are paying attention every day are like, whoa, the attorney general stepped in. There's a lot of weird stuff that probably is in the gray areas going on. Uh, this should have a major impact. If you looked at the prices within 24 hours of the news, Tether was down like a half, you know, 1.5%. I think Bitcoin was down less than 5%. Like it didn't really have the impact that I think a lot of people would have previously thought it would. Right. If you said to them, hey, the New York Attorney General is gonna step in and this is what's gonna be revealed, I think people would have thought that's that's a really bad situation. It leads me to think, you know, how important is Tether to the crypto ecosystem? And let's go to the really bad situation where like Tether just completely blows up, right? What how do you like how does that play out? Well that would be bad. I think the reason uh, the market <laughs> That's the understatement
1: of the year, Nick. <laughs> I think the reason the market maybe didn't react as much as we would have expected is because the market appears to be telling us that they believe that Bifinex will actually remediate the situation. Um, and that might be because they're training this on the model of the last time Bitfinex had like a serious, unplanned for liability when they're hacked in 2016, I believe. And they were able to claw their way out of that bad situation. Mm-hmm. So um, potentially, traders are saying, well, actually, we think Bitfinex might be good for it, um, eventually down the line. Um, although, I mean, it looks extremely dire for them, to be frank with you. Mm-hmm. What I think Tether does, Tether is like a euro dollar in in Bitcoin, on Bitcoin, and it allows um, you know do- dollar-denominated risk to float around the crypto industry, and I think if, uh, uh, essentially what it does is it allows a lot of these totally uh, unregulated exchanges, which are not connected to financial infrastructure in any way, to operate um, with traders having the option to um, to transform their risk to dollar denomination. Um, which has meant that there's this cottage industry of totally unregulated exchanges which have emerged. Um, and if you look at what tether trades against, um, it's everything. you know it's like the long tail of assets. So um, a tether wipeout would be I mean it's a really significant fraction of Bitcoin volume too, although it's hard to determine what's real and what's not, but it's like a, a large fraction. Um, but it's also a large fraction of other kind of long tail coins. Mm-hmm. So, if it gets wiped out, I think it, it has a very negative effect on Bitcoin, but also on long tail. I think that's something that's being overlooked.
0: Yeah. Do, do you think it's something where it blew up? Are we talking about 50% drops in prices, people completely are insolvent, um, and, uh, and customers are stuck? Uh, in terms of they can actually get funds that they want access to? Or do you think it's less like Armageddon Day type situation? And it's probably much more, hey, this is bad. There's definitely a, a, in the short term, you know, painful situation. But if you look at it over the long term, you know, people will talk about it like a Mt. Gox, hey, that was really bad when it happened, but we get over it and kind of keep going.
1: What I think is actually likely to happen here um, if Tether ceases operations, it would be because regulators actually step in. Um, and um, you know, uh, uh, assert you know jurisdiction over them. Um, and this kind of reminds me of the way that it happened when online poker was shut down in the U.S. in 2011. Um, I had fu- had funds on full tilt for sure. Um, you know, the government just stepped in, froze everything, and had this long process of accounting and remediation, and some of the the poker sites were operating at a fractional reserve actually great like prelude to crypto um, and eventually you're able to claim and get your
0: funds back um, although you may have taken a haircut so I think because I think was those websites like one day people just went and there was just a basically a website photo from like the FBI yeah. it was like this website's been seized by the FBI right remember, what is it Black Friday or Black Monday yeah
1: it was, <laughs> it was a dark day um and it just it took Years for everybody to get their funds out, but um, so yeah, I think it would be kind of a, it would be freeze operations, and then there'd be process of claiming to get your funds back. But you know, to the extent that Tether is is three quarters backed right now, um, that's kind of what depositors can expect to get out
0: of it if Got that it. happened today. That makes sense. Let's um, let's go back to Castle Island for a second. Um, any portfolio companies that you're really excited about that you want to kind of talk through and, and explain why you guys uh, are excited about them? So there's one that actually was just announced today. Oh, okay. Um, All right. Eris okay.
1: X is um, is a uh, regulated spot and futures um, cryptocurrency exchange. Mm-hmm. Um, so they are um, bringing kind of a maturity to this industry, which is. It contrasts nicely with what we've been talking about thus far. Um, So they're an exchange in the kind of the same way that the NYSE or Nasdaq is an exchange, in that normal individual or retail investors cannot get an account on the exchange. So it always struck me as kind of weird that on Bitmax, for instance, you had these like large quant firms trading against uh, random global retail investors. It seemed very predatory, and I think that's. you know, that's, that's why Bit, BitMEX is kind of a dangerous place to trade, um, so ErisX um, is a conventional exchange in that um, you would have to go through a brokerage to get access to them if you're a, a retail investor. Um, and I think this is just better for consumer protection, essentially. Uh, they're also unbundling exchange and custody, which is a really interesting. Uh, obviously, that's the default in normal capital markets.
0: So, all right. So, this yeah. is really important, right? Because this is one thing that blew my mind in crypto is, in the traditional financial system, you custody your funds in one place, and you trade with those funds in another place. They are not vertically integrated yeah. in almost every situation. It has
1: always struck me as like really bizarre that exchanges have to, as you say, vertically integrate and um, engage in these extremely different kinds of activities. One is custody, which is this like, you know, you have threat models and it's like it's a huge, significant challenge, requires enormous engineering resources, uh, and the other one is like, you know, matching trades, which is a totally different kind of competency entirely. Uh, so Eris is is focused on the exchange uh, segment, not on the custody, uh, which it. which I think is healthy because we now we're seeing institutions specialize. Yep. And the other thing is that they are they will have market makers live on the platform on day one, so spreads will be tight. There will be surveillance. Um, the whole thing is is probably much more amenable to what the regulators want from out of this market. Um, you know. So of course, crypto is much bigger than. Uh, you know, regulated spot and futures trading in the U.S., but this is really important in terms of market structure, in my opinion.
0: It, it almost feels like um, the adults are showing up a little bit, right? I, I actually, in my opinion, look at what I'll call crypto incumbents, right? The people who have built very large, multi-billion dollar businesses in crypto with exchanges in custody to date, uh, they're adults, right? They've been able to uh, do this in a mature, regulated, um, kind of safe way, uh, but there's not that many of them. Right. I mean, we probably could sit here and name 10 or less that have been able to do that successfully. Uh, And now what we're starting to see is the people cross over from the traditional financial world who understand everything from the unbundling to the regulatory um, kind of bent in in, uh, how to interface with those regulators. Do we just see consolidation with the crypto incumbents like. Do these new players to the market just start buying up the Krakens and Coinbase's and just saying, "Hey, you guys have users. You guys have been doing this a long time. Got a lot of institutional knowledge. but let's come together." Or do you see this like battle for the user kind of play out over the next five years or so?
1: I think the the incumbents, the um, you know, the traditional uh, crypto exchanges that we know and love will always probably have a place in the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, in particular, you know, retail investors love them. It does appear that they've stepped back from competing in the more institutional space. So, like Coinbase just shuttered their office in Chicago, and had departures on that front. Um, and then, you know, meanwhile, you have uh, custodians like Fidelity that are stepping in, and exchanges like Erisx and Bact, which are now entering. And it seems that they're much better place to compete in that side of the market. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Um, I think that eventually the industry will consolidate around a few of those uh, kind of more sophisticated players. Yeah. Uh, but um, I, I'm certain that we'll also always have um, appetite for exchanges like Coinbase and Binance and so on.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, let's talk about uh, the maturation of Bitcoin real quick and, and just kind of how it interfaces with institutions. If you're one of these large financial organizations, what do you do with Bitcoin? Just buy a bunch of it, put it on your balance sheet? Do you mind? Do you, you know, is it almost like the simple things that you and I would think of that you can do with Bitcoin are the things that they should be doing just at scale? Uh, or do they just ignore it? What do they do? Well, for the most part, they ignore it. But um,
1: to the extent that they are engaging, it's mostly on the, you know, well, how do we, uh, if we have clients, like, what do we tell them about it? Um, can we custody it for them? Uh, but I think a lot of the um, reluctance to engage with it has been due to its, you um, Obviously, the perceptions related to the, like the facilitating the darknet markets and so on, but also the instability of Bitcoin. Um, you know, events like the the fork in August twenty seventeen, the hostile, the competition from Bitcoin Cash, and so on, uh, that contributes to this air of instability. Um, th- there have been you know a couple of critical bugs in history. Um, it, it's still software, and you know you could even say experimental software, um, and. You don't really want to like with gold. There's no risk that uh, the gold in your vaults transmutes into lead all of a sudden. Um, but uh, with Bitcoin, there's kind of a, like a, a slight risk that um, that 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 there's a critical bug and something terrible happens. So yeah, um, I mean, nothing that's not recoverable in my opinion. But um, th- the fact that it is, it's not you know perfectly understood yet, um, kind of explains the reluctance a
0: little bit. I gave somebody this. Uh uh, this comparison the other day and I said it feels like to me the institutions are like the Roman Empire uh emperors right and so they're all dressed up really nicely in all their jewelry and their white cloths and everything and they go to uh, uh the arena and they watch the gladiators fight it out right and they kill each other and they and they're just you know savages in the arena and it's entertainment right for, for the kind of elites to watch this happen and, and they're betting on it and they're doing all this stuff but they'll never get into the arena, <laughs> right? And, and so I feel like if you compare the large financial institutions, like they're the elites in the white cloths watching, and then it's like crypto Twitter is like the gladiators in the arena and just like all of the, uh, the drama and the just absolute... Um, it's just ruthlessness, I think, right? If you look yeah. at some of the forks and, and the uh, the soap operas that go yeah. on around this stuff, uh, it just feels like two different worlds.
1: And But, the, you know, it's like totally paradoxical to sit here. I'm, you know, a Bitcoiner, hardcore, et cetera, you know, ideologically motivated. And here I am talking about the institutionalization of Bitcoin, it's like, Nick, like that's completely paradoxical. This thing is, we were meant to like take down the banks and so on. And to some degree, that's totally true. Um, and I think, you know, the... Uh, the demographics that are best served by crypto are outside of the U.S. and/or there are people that are marginalized or you know not well. Uh, they can't engage with the the current financial system well. So whether that's uh, sex workers, um, people in countries that are under sanction or where uh, Swift you know doesn't work or operate, um, or individuals like in the cannabis industry, even if what they're doing is totally legal. You know, those are the use case where where crypto kind of makes perfect sense for them. Or if you're trying to send remittances to a channel where there's not a good efficiency there. Um, so, you know, the the immediate uh, you know demographic that um, can benefit the most from crypto is, is you know the marginalized, those outside the U.S. You know, for for the most part. So, I am definitely aware
0: of the kind of the paradoxes inherent here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, makes sense. Um, before we finish up, uh, you brought these dice. Uh, tell us a little bit about the dice, and then we'll play a game for a couple of minutes.
1: So the dice. Uh, initially, I made a meme actually on Photoshop where I was sick of the like the Paul Krugman Krugmans of the world like trashing uh, Bitcoin with like the same like ten ex- like you know like lines of attack, and so I decided to parody the critics and put all their different critiques on a different side of a twelve sided dice. At first, I wanted 20 sides, but my dice manufacturers told me they couldn't fit them on the panels because they're too small. Uh, so we have edition one and edition two of the Bitcoin FUD dice here with us, uh, and each side is a different critique, and the, it's a, basically a parody of, uh, of the, the kind of op-ed columnists that hate Bitcoin.
0: All right. So I'm going to roll this three times. Each time, I'm going to tell you what the, uh, the critique is, and then you uh, disprove the, uh, the critique. So the first one is uh, high fees. Yeah, high fees, man. Um,
1: that's a, it's a very common line of critique, that's for sure. <laughs> um, so I guess one of the critiques relating to fees is that uh, Bitcoin is a, a poor payments network if fees got too high, which is actually fair, uh, which is why we have to build in this layered manner, uh, maybe with the base layer being more of a settlement layer and other layers being the actual payments layers. But, yeah, I mean, I, ex- I fully expect fees on the base layer to be, you know, in the multiple dollars range in the future.
0: Ah, oh, toxic fans, the savages in the arena. <laughs> yeah, I think we're
1: both very much accustomed to this. Um, the the Yeah, so the interesting thing there is conflating the fans with the thing itself, you know. So, mm-hmm. like Bitcoin is like a neutral technology. Um, it doesn't really have opinions. It's just a technology. Uh, but the fans... Uh, are non-neutral. So um, the question is, is the technology valuable and useful regardless of the behavior of the fans? And I think it, it is.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I always joke around and says, you know, Bitcoin doesn't care about your politics, your religion, your technical charts or anything else. Um, it, it, is, uh, it just is, right? It just yeah. exists. And then it's how you and I use it that we uh, talk about it that, uh, that I think drives the, the sentiment. All right. Last one. Oh, uh, high yeah, fees again. Fees, they, yeah. they really like the high fees. Uh,
1: selfish mining. Oh, yeah. This was an old <laughs> critique by a, a Cornell professor that uh, I think he, before he released the paper, he said that uh, his result had broken Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, sell your Bitcoin. My paper uh, disproves Bitcoin. <laughs> That was a classic. Um, but yeah, I think selfish mining actually is a potential edge case with mining, but it doesn't seem to be uh, kind of a big deal. So. What what what, uh, what is the claim with selfish mining? Um, that um, that miners can subvert the mining process by uh, withholding blocks um, oh, okay. and giving larger miners an advantage, I believe. But yeah. you know, Bitcoin
0: seems to be fine. Uh, the I don't know who wrote it, but I guess they uh, they were inaccurate in breaking Bitcoin. So uh, maybe they'll try again. So many professors have uh, have tried. I think
1: it's this this condition I call Satoshi envy, where <laughs> you know they were maybe have been active in cryptography or distributed systems engineering, and they didn't invent Bitcoin, mm-hmm. but Bitcoin was the biggest thing in their field ever, and so they just you know they're so. Pained by this, that they then engage in this like Sisyphean effort to reinvent Bitcoin or invent a better alternative, when. You know, Bitcoin is perfectly sufficient, and we don't need all these professor coins.
0: So, uh, one of my favorite parts about this whole like professor envy or, or Satoshi envy, as you call it, uh, is the idea that normally, if we knew who the creator was, they would just like ad homnia attack nonstop that one person, right, and tell us all how stupid they are, how bad they are. You know, there'd probably be some scandal, whatever. Uh, when you don't know who that person is, you can't attack the person. That's you have beauty to attack of it. the idea. Yeah, <laughs> right. The idea is pretty good. So, so far, so good. Ten years in, yeah. <laughs> hundreds of billions of dollars a, a year is not uh, not too shabby. Um, all right. Before I uh, finish up, do uh, rapid fire uh, questions. Uh, what's the most important company in crypto, in your opinion?
1: Um, oh, okay. Um I I believe it's Fidelity Investments. Fidelity? oh, why? Okay. I'm, I'm not just saying that cuz um, you know, I've many friends and colleagues that that work there, but um I think uh, custody and in particular defining a good control location, I think the SEC will give us clarity on that soon. Um that is what will make um institutions comfortable with engaging with not just Bitcoin, but, you know, cryptocurrency more generally. Got it. What um what's the one regulation you would change or improve if you could? So aside from the, the control location, which is kind of esoteric, <laughs> yep. um, I would say the IRS, I would ask for a safe harbor or an exemption. Um, in terms of uh, the tax treatment for uh, for small uses of Bitcoin for purchases.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Um, what do you think your most controversial thought in crypto is?
1: That time that I advocated for a dynamic block size on Bitcoin uh, to optimize for a high level of fees or a stable level of fees, mm-hmm. uh, people didn't like that. <laughs> Listen, we all have that
0: one moment where we said something.
1: Like, oh, I, I figured out how to fix Bitcoin. Yeah. <laughs> I just found out about
0: Bitcoin. I'm here to fix it. <laughs> <laughs> I literally do not know know somebody who is uh well respected in bitcoin today who if you ask them usually you have to ask them in private what's the one thing that you've said about bitcoin that maybe you would take back they all have one thing yeah right totally so, so, uh, okay. so it, we've all been savaged by the herd yeah, yeah. And, and by the way that makes you appreciate it right <laughs> like you realize hey man this actually this thing works um <laughs>
1: yeah. uh, what's the uh, most important book you've ever read um i'm a huge uh Taleb fan um i think uh, that's like maybe every like white male my age is as well, but um, I would say Fooled by Randomness, uh, his first book actually, it, it really like that one the best. T- taught me how to think about probability, about trading. Yeah, really just an outstanding book and uh, underappreciated relative to the rest of his canon.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Um, where can people
1: find the dice? They can find them on the Casa store. Um, so Casa is a portfolio company, full disclosure, but so I, I gave them a box of the dice to sell. I think you can buy them on the Lightning
0: Network. C A S A is the way you spell casa. For yes. If you want to go check it out, I just go to the website. I think they have a store there. Um, all right. Before I let you ask me a question to end, uh, I talk about aliens. Believer, or non-believer. Uh not not believe- Not believer. No. You do not believe in aliens. You think they do not exist. Well,
1: I mean, I don't think we've been visited by aliens. Okay. I agree with that. Uh, I think space is you know pretty big. Like odds are there is probably life out there. Um, if there isn't, then that's totally cause for concern. Like I'm a big believer in Fermi's paradox and Mm -hmm. the great filter. So if there wasn't any extraterrestrial life, I'd be very worried about us. Cause then it's like, well, what's going to kill us off? You know, um, is there a stage of civilization where you just collapse? Uh, but, uh, I don't believe that we're currently, uh,
0: you know, in touch with aliens. Yeah. I, so I agree with you that they likely to exist. I agree. we probably have never talked to them. They've never talked to us or contacted each other or whatever, the light show or whatever those people want to say. Um, but the one thing uh, that you just made me think of, I don't know why I thought of this. Could you imagine if we were just living, going through life and then all of a sudden you woke up one day and you're the only human left on earth? Like there's just some catastrophic event and literally you're just walking around. Everyone else is dead and you're the only person. I have thought about that. Really? Yeah. Like, I what do,
1: do you do? I don't know. It's like, I am legend. You can just do whatever you want. Like, do you just go get like a burger, (laughs) you know, and like try to live your life or? Well, the burger is not going to be good, like in a week's time. And then you have to hunt deer in the street or something. It would be pretty lonely. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. All right. No one uh, one else on Twitter, too. Oh, Twitter would. uh... That would actually be the most devastating part.
0: Depending on who you ask, some people may say Twitter would be better. <laughs> they could just say all their nonsense into the ether and no one yeah. would care. Tw- Twitter's fascinating to me because uh, it's the one place you can go and uh, you can say pretty much anything you want. Everything from like, here's the food I'm eating to I'm in this city to like, I've got this grand idea about, you know, crypto or whatever. And uh, you'll one, find other weirdos that agree with or disagree with you. Uh, two, nobody is shy about letting you know their opinion. And then three, is uh, you are guaranteed if you tweet enough to meet people in real life who are the lurkers who they're like oh I read all your stuff You're like I don't even didn't even know you had a Twitter account yeah. <laughs> right and uh, and so you always got to just kind of keep it in the back of your head there's people who are watching this who have I have no clue who they are yeah that was the, the I'm sure this happens to you a lot
1: but I started getting recognized on the street <laughs> uh, happened to me a couple of times and I always thought I was like pretty marginal you know. And I was like, oh, God, like Twitter is now beginning to cross the threshold into real life.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it is. So. Uh, it, it's going to be pretty crazy, I think, when uh, the next bull market occurs in the sense of um, the people are going to be kind of three, four years older. Right. So you kind of get the, the folks who came in as 20 to 25 year olds are now going to be like 25 to 30 year olds, that type of range. And so I think they're just going to be more active, more social, like all of that. Uh, And then you're going to get the new wave of all the kind of college kids coming in. Um, And and so it's just I I just keep thinking about, you know, is it double or triple the size of what we saw in 2017? Oh, man. I mean, if you think about it, um, if Bitcoin and crypto achieves the significance
1: we think it will, Some of the Twitter influencers of today will be politicians, you know,
0: uh, and cult leaders in the future. Um, So I guess we can look forward to that. (laughs) My goal is to get Jameson Lop to uh, to come out of hiding. (laughs) That that's the goal. He's uh, have you not had him on? Huh. Uh, no, no, he, he would come on. I actually haven't talked to him about it, but I should get him on here. Uh, but just the idea of like, he's so security um, kind of uh, focused, right? To, to actually get him to come out publicly and say, this is where I live, right? Because then that means that uh, we, we live in a very different world than I think we live in today. He would need to really amp up his security measures at that point. Yeah, for sure. Um, all right, what, uh,
1: what one question do you have for me to end this thing? Um, okay, so let me see. On the... Uh on the spectrum of uh, of beliefs about uh, crypto and blockchains, I'll just briefly describe them and I want okay. you to tell me which you think is the most um, defensible based on the evidence you've seen so far. Oh, okay. Interesting. So, uh, On the one hand, you have full-on no coinism, mm-hmm. you don't own crypto and you don't believe it will matter. Okay. And Then you have the kind of intermediate step, which is like you believe in blockchain technology but not really in crypto. Then you have just pure... Uh, Orthodox Bitcoinism, you know, you really only think Bitcoin's the interesting thing here. And then you have, like, the more progressive, like, multi-coinism, like, there will be many um, assets, many chains. And then, like, the more extreme, like, kind of techno-utopian, which is we will have DAOs, virtually everything will be tokenized. Um, Like, crypto is going to massively take over and will gain political significance and so on. So, like, where on that spectrum do you think the evidence
0: falls in favor of the most? Okay, so I'm gonna answer this in in kind of two different ways. One is uh, for the mass consumer, I think that no coinism is like the most rational thing for them, right? So uh, they don't necessarily, they're not early adopters, right? They pretty much, their life is not gonna be impacted. They don't think about investments, right? All this kind of stuff. They just go about their life every day. For that person, Uh, the odds that this is important or worth paying attention to today is like near zero, right? So so from a rationality standpoint, if you are just an everyday person with no technological bent, no interest in technology or investing, uh, and you just want to kind of, you know, go to work every day, come home to your family, enjoy your life, and, and that's it no coinism to me is very rational. It makes total sense. Yeah. And and like, it's just a probability game, right? Of like, how many new things come along in technology? It's not like they're freaking out because of AI. I mean,
1: you don't need to care about it. Or like innovations in uh, machine learning or like self-driving cars. By
0: the way, at some point there's going to be an app on your phone that uses a bunch of you know woo-woo technology you've never heard of before, but you don't care because it gets you from point A to point B, right? And you're like, oh, it's a map. Like, that's not really a map, (laughs) right? It's like a futuristic map, but okay. So I think that that is like the most rational thing for probably majority of the world. Right. In terms of just uh, on a pure aggregate number basis. Yeah. Now, if you go to what I'll call like the technologist um, perspective, this is somebody who uh, understands technology, uh, maybe is an early adopter or an early adopter and um, has a specific interest in this. Right. So they're even they've looked at it. In my opinion, it is Bitcoin has the highest probability of being successful, right? So if you just look at all, if you line up all of the different tokens and use cases, Bitcoin has the highest probability. Everything from the Lindy effect to just size to that's the, you know kind of where the the uh, name brand or, or kind of um, mind share goes, all that kind of stuff. So I think that's like a high probability. Uh, in my opinion, relatively low risk today, right? In terms of it's not going to go to zero now if you look at everything else i think that's really where it gets interesting so it's you can be bitcoin nothing else you can be bitcoin's important and there will be other things or you can be like bitcoin is no more important uh than anything else yeah right i tend to be in the second category which Uh, is bitcoin is the most important bitcoin has the highest probability of being successful but it is not bitcoin is the only thing in the world right and i think that part of this is um you know there's an argument to be made about like all these other tokens are just R and D for Bitcoin. So like in that world, it's not that those other tokens are not important at all. They're actually important from an R and D perspective for Bitcoin, right? So you can make that argument. Um, But really where I get to like Bitcoin's the most important, but everything else, the only thing else I'm really interested in is this idea of automation. Right. What I mean by automation is if you think of assets that we've previously had, we've had analog physical assets, we've had these electronic QCIP assets, right? Um, and then we eventually got computer files that are digital assets. Those computer files have always been non-financial instruments. So music and all this kind of stuff. Blockchain, triple entry accounting, we, they cannot be financial instruments. To me, it's less about anything other than now the machines and algorithms are going to be able to use a digitally native asset with digitally native accounting or triple entry accounting to conduct transactions, right? And so if you look at this as automation, I'm less interested in like, does this chain win over that chain or this token versus that token? It's just, what are the things that can interface from a technology standpoint or are compatible with an automated future? I don't think we know yet, right? It's, yeah. it's kind of how I'll leave it. And, yeah. and the reason being, you know, Look, we, we can talk about one that uh, to me makes a lot of sense, but I have questions around it. So recently, um, Jaguar Land Rover announced that they're going to use IOTA, right? They're going to build this digital wallet in a car. They're going to pay people for data that they contribute. Uh, and then it sounds like the IOTA team's goal is to eventually then like whatever balance you have in the digital wallet, you can pay tolls. You can do like all this stuff, right? If it works, that's pretty transformative. Yeah. So, so here's how I come out on it. One is... Sound idea in terms of like, I actually believe that a car will be part of this like Internet of Things, right? To some degree it already is. Seems inevitable, yeah, totally. Two is if you then wrap like the smart city concept around it, like again, high probability that we'll get somewhere there in the future. My big question has come down to do you need a different token? Could you just do it with Bitcoin, right? is maybe the other tokens like a gateway drug right so like a jaguar land rover scared of bitcoin so they end up using something that they think is a specific use case token and then eventually they kind of go through their path and end up at bitcoin uh can you just support multi-currencies right so could it be a digital wallet and you and i like bitcoin somebody else like something else and you know somebody else says hey i'm a dignitary i want to use a regulated you know digital dollar right and that's what they want to use i don't know how it all plays out but i do think that Bitcoin's really important and this like, idea of automation, it just, we, there's so much unknown. Yeah, And it's, I'm, I really wanna see it happen. I tend to probably agree with you that like most of it is gonna consolidate in and around Bitcoin, right? So whether it is, are all the transactions done on the settlement layer, are there other layers that are built, you know, is it tangentially related? I, I don't know exactly where I just go build it all myself. <laughs> um, and, and so I think that's what we spend our day, you know, investing, trying to figure out. It's like, where's the world going in that in that vein?
1: That's right. Well, that, that is a, a tremendous answer, man. Like, extremely well thought out.
0: Uh, we are literally paid to think about this all day long. Um, as I joke with people all the time, the uh, the podcast is just uh, the fun stuff, right? We actually do real work around here. <laughs> <laughs> i guess you can call it that yeah ex- exactly uh, all right listen this has been a uh, absolute pleasure uh we will have to do this again for sure in the future and uh just keep us updated as you guys are progressing well thanks for having me on man i really appreciate it monarch is building the future for those interested in one wallet that consolidates the best services and functionality into a simple and easy to use application the monarch app and wallet will empower users to control all aspects of their financial kingdom from the palm of their hand you may have heard the phrase not your keys not your crypto with monarch you own your keys and your seed phrase meaning you own your own crypto with monarch you can store receive send swap buy sell and earn interest on your crypto you can track your portfolio in the news and you can check the market cap daily they're constantly adding new services and updates and you can learn more today by visiting monarchwallet.com slash pomp again that's monarchwallet.com slash pomp or you can download the wallet for free today from apple or google hey everyone pop here